0: The whole idea of the drama and imposition of the monumental landscape is that it is meant to feel natural. It is not meant to make you stop and think. It is meant to be ambient. And in the case of so many monuments, it is meant to dwarf you. It is meant to make you feel smaller. It is meant to make you look up and worship. This is Monumental, a podcast series produced by PRX. I'm your host, Ashley C. Ford. The voice you heard at the top is Elizabeth Alexander. She's the president of the Mellon Foundation. In 2021, the Mellon Foundation supported an audit of every monument across the US. What they found out was that there were a few frontrunners. Coming in at number three, just behind Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, with 149 monuments across these United States, was Christopher Columbus. But that number has been falling fast. When I was growing up, Christopher Columbus was the reason for Columbus Day. He represented a three-day weekend and the kickoff for the holiday season. It wasn't until I got to college that I started questioning why we celebrate him in the first place. I heard firsthand from other Native American students why a long weekend for me was a source of pain and sadness for them. It was a really stark example of how people I cared about were forced to see so many of us celebrating in our ignorance. And of course, it didn't matter whether that ignorance was willful or not. Listening to the reporting in this episode, I realized that a lot of the experiences I was having were paralleled by what was happening nationwide. 1992 was the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the quote, unquote, new world. And that moment sparked a lot of the reappraisal of Columbus that we're still very much in the middle of. Soon, plenty of other perspectives on the Columbus story could no longer be ignored. Native and indigenous communities stood up on behalf of their own populations that had been decimated, even eradicated by Western colonization. And while Indigenous People's Day was proposed as counter-programming starting in the late 1970s, it wasn't until 2021 that a sitting president, Joe Biden, actually acknowledged it. Over the last few years, we've seen the fight over Columbus as a symbol reaching a new pitch, with statues being torn down all over the place. While statues of Christopher Columbus have been coming down in places like St. Paul, Minnesota, Chicago, and even um, Columbus, Ohio, in this episode, you'll hear the story of the largest one in the world standing tall, very, very tall, in a U.S. territory. We'll look at the legacy of Columbus and how it fed into America's own colonialist ambitions, and we'll explore how some communities are dismantling and reclaiming those narratives today. Producer Giseli Regatow, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baruch College in New York City, takes the story from here.
1: Recibo is a small beach town in Puerto Rico that faces the Atlantic Ocean. The waves here are pretty rough, but I got in the water anyway. It was warm, pristine, and clear. On the shore, there are several large rock formations. The beach is filled with palm trees. Some of the houses are partially destroyed, their walls falling apart. But the general feeling is still idyllic. We are located in a sacred place, says Pluma Bárbara Moreno. She's an indigenous activist who lives in this area. Moreno is 49 years old. She has brown skin and very long, dark, straight hair that moves all over her face with a strong wind. She's wearing this colorful necklace and earrings that are made of wood and feathers. From where we're standing in Punta Caracoles Beach, she points out a giant statue that's located more than two miles away. Si un poco, ves el pico. If you walk a little bit, you see its peak, she says. I was running earlier today, and I actually stopped when I saw the statue far away on the shore. It's way taller than the palm trees around it. I'm going to tell you the truth, she says. I pass in front of it. It's on a route that's used by the community. But I don't even like looking at it. Because every time I look at it, I remember an unpunished crime. Moreno is talking about the birth of the new world. That's a monument of Christopher Columbus that is larger than the Statue of Liberty. It was inaugurated in Arrecibo in 2016. I was surprised by how recently the statue was installed here. By then, many Columbus statues had been vandalized and a few taken down all over the world. Moreno and other indigenous groups have protested against this monument for years. This is a monument of historical fraud. Why? Why? Because first we have to talk about the fact that here there were no conquests. People talk about the conquerors. Here there are no conquerors. There are invaders, she says. Moreno says she and other groups will continue to fight. Right now, they are asking that statues and names of the so-called conquerors be removed from everywhere in Puerto Rico. Esa el peor de los this statue represents the worst of crimes. If they're gonna take it down right now or not, I don't know. Maybe it won't be right now, but it will happen, because we believe in justice, the justice we can perpetuate ourselves. We tirelessly will continue to fight, she says. On my drive to get closer to the statue, I stopped to get coffee at a food truck. It's parked in front of a hardware store called Ferreteria Caracoles.
2: <laughs>
1: Félix Mieles is the owner of the store.
3: Desde aquí se puede ver la you
1: can see the statue from here, he tells me proudly. His store is about half a mile from the monument. Mieles sees the statue in a very different way than Pluma Moreno, the indigenous activist.
3: Touristically
1: speaking, it's very good, he says. Mieles was born and raised in Arecibo. He's seen lots of changes since the statue got
3: here. On
1: weekends, there's immense traffic. It's been very favorable for all the businesses, for the town of Arrecibo. Many people have been motivated to set up shops in the area. Basically, Arecibo was not on the map before, he says. Miele says he knows that other Columbus statues have been removed, but he thinks the birth of the new world belongs right
3: here.
1: It is part of our country's history, for the good or the bad, he says. I'm now right in front of the birth of the New World on a narrow coastal road in Arecibo. Seeing this massive bronze monument up close hits me even harder than I expected. The gigantic Columbus is on top of a hill, facing the beach. Picture a 20-story building. It's taller than that. I'm here with a Puerto Rican historian.
4: My name is Aura Hirau Arroyo, and I I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University, and I'm originally from Bayamón, Puerto Rico, which is 20 minutes west of San Juan.
1: Aura Hirao studies activism in Puerto Rico. She's wearing two long silver earrings that say in one, crítica, or critic, and on the other, luchadora, or fighter. I asked her to meet me here, and it's her first time seeing the statue up close. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I just find it aesthetically not pleasing because the dimensions are so messed up. Like the boat is so small and the, the Columbus looks so big. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just very stunned.
1: <laughs> the dimensions are a mishmash. Columbus is standing on a small boat behind a ship's helm. He's wearing a hat and a robe, and his right hand is raised awkwardly, palm facing up. Behind him, there are three sails. They represent the ships from his journey across the Atlantic in 1492. The statue sits on private land, and you can't get close to it. It's fenced off. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I visited the statue several times over a holiday weekend. A lot of people didn't even look at it at all. Just a few stop their cars to take pictures from the road. Rosa Melendez is one of them.
5: Yo vivo en en y soy de... She tells me
1: she lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and is a preschool teacher. She's of Puerto Rican descent and stops by the statue every time she's in this area. I don't know much about the history. (laughs) There are people for and against it. But I just keep myself neutral and just enjoy the statue, she says. Historian Aura Hirao says she's never wanted to visit the statue because she believes Columbus is a problematic historical figure.
4: And in Puerto Rico specifically, we have a huge problem glorifying great men. Christopher Columbus is the first one we learn to glorify in school. I don't know if you've heard about this the Columbus song. It's like in un pueblito de Italia, like in a little town in Italy, Nacio Colón. Christopher Columbus was born. He enjoyed looking at ships and speaking about sailing. In Hirao's opinion,
1: the European colonizers' impact here was devastating.
4: The violence of people like Columbus and his cronies in the early stages of conquista was such that our native people got killed, like, en masse. Um, So it's so bizarre to see someone like him be praised as this intelligent person, this innovative person. It might seem bizarre now, but that is how the
1: artist who created Birth of the New World saw Columbus when he built the statue. His name is Zurab Zereteli. He grew up in Georgia when he was part of the Soviet Union.
6: If you take early 90s, 80s, um, it's a fascination with a person who discovered the New World.
1: This is Zurab Zereteli's grandson, Vasily Zereteli. He's often his spokesperson because his grandfather lives in Moscow and doesn't speak English.
6: It's higher than Statue of Liberty because in the idea of my grandfather, first the land was discovered on which the freedom was built.
1: I met Vasily at his lawyer's office in Midtown Manhattan. He greeted me warmly and even gave me two books about his grandfather. Welcome. You just landed.
6: Yeah, today.
1: Oh, my gosh.
6: For you, the books.
1: Oh, thank you. Vassili says his grandfather created the statue in the early 1990s to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Columbus' arrival to the Americas. He says it was his hardest project.
6: The Columbus was a difficult monument. It's a, it's very difficult uh, monument to create and to, you know, place it.
1: I asked Vasily Seretelli if he thinks his grandfather would have built the monument today.
6: Probably not. It's a different world. At that time, it was 500th anniversary to celebrate United States. Whole United States was celebrating. And you have to understand also from where we are coming from. It's an artist, Georgian, creating a monument in Soviet Union where you could not envision of traveling anywhere. So Columbus, for many of people who are deprived of traveling, deprived of thinking of new ideas and everything was a symbol of something new.
1: After he created the statue, Zurab Sereteli needed a home for it. And that turned out to be much harder than he anticipated. He envisioned this statue in Roosevelt Island in New York City, but there wasn't enough local support to make that happen. Other cities weren't interested either, including Columbus, Ohio, Miami, and Boston. The governor of Puerto Rico accepted the statue as a gift in 1998. They spent more than $2 million in public funds to bring it to the island. They hoped it would attract tourists. It was supposed to go to a suburb of the capital of San Juan, but local people protested and a new mayor came in. So, the gigantic bronze pieces went into storage for 16 years. In 2014, José González Freire, who's a local businessman, decided to install the statue on his private land in Arecibo. His plan was to develop a park and other attractions around it. Ceratelis says González and his grandfather financed the installation together. They spent almost $20 million. And in 2016, Birth of the New World was inaugurated. Ingrid Rivera was the head of the government agency in charge of tourism in Puerto Rico then. De
7: la más alta de todo, todas las
1: we're talking about the tallest structure in the Americas, and that will make people want to visit it, she says. Even after the statue finally went up, the turmoil around it continued. In 2019, Ceretelli sued the owner of the land. He said people were climbing on top of the statue. The parties eventually settled, and that's when the fence was built around it. The park and other attractions still haven't been built. This is not the first time that Zoran Sereteli's work has been tangled in controversy. His massive statue of the Russian Tsar Peter the Great in downtown Moscow is overwhelmingly disliked, says Alex Rodriguez. Rodriguez was the Russian correspondent of the Chicago Tribune and is now on its editorial board. He got a rare in-person interview with Zorab Serratelli in 2005. Rodriguez asked him directly to respond to his critics.
3: The way they referred to it was he had a um, conveyor belt approach to art, just churning it out rather than focusing on meaning, on something to say, on quality. His answer
1: was something akin to Goya or Donatello or uh, Michelangelo. Would you ask the same question to them? So he, he was equating himself with some of the great
5: artists in history.
1: Still, his sculptures are displayed in places like the United Nations in New York City and also in London, Rome, and Tokyo. Rodriguez says that's because of his wealth and connections. He, early on, was able to find friends in high places in powerful places. And that's how he rose up the ranks. So if people with a lot of power and money like the art that you create, regardless of what the masses think, you're gonna go places and your art's gonna be uh, paid for and prominently displayed. In the case of Birth of the New World, Arrecibo is not exactly a prominent location, but Julian Go isn't surprised to find a Columbus statue in Puerto Rico.
5: Everywhere across the colonial world, monuments go up to the colonizers.
1: He's a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago who studies empires and colonialism. He says it's unfortunate to have this symbol of imperialism here. Let's consider Puerto Rico's status as an American territory and the history that led up to this. Columbus opened the door Then, for over 400 years, Puerto Rico was a colony of Spain, like most of Latin America. But while other countries in the region became independent, Puerto Rico didn't. When the Spanish-American War ended in 1898, the U.S. took it, along with Spain's other possessions, the Philippines and Guam. Go says when the U.S. first took over, it promised to shape its new colonies in America's image
5: there was a sort of pretext of helping Puerto Ricans and Filipinos learn how to become one day self-governing. And so they let them have elections, they let them hold political office, but again, the Americans controlled and made all final decisions.
1: Today, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, but Go says that term is misleading.
5: I do think Puerto Rico has the status of a colony or a quasi-colony. There are a, series, a whole series of Privileges and rights that Puerto Ricans are denied. I mean, officially, if you are a Puerto Rican resident, you can't vote for the president, but the president can send you to war.
1: Puerto Rico is neither an American state nor an independent country. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, but they don't have representation in Congress. Essentially, it's still under imperial control, according to GO. Congress is once again discussing a new bill to decide Puerto Rico's status. With the debate between statehood and independence swirling, historian Aura Hirao says Puerto Ricans are seeing their history and people like Columbus in a much more critical way.
4: People are beginning to, like, say, like, oh, Christopher Columbus was not a good person. He helped exterminate our indigenous people. So it's very ironic that right when that conversation is shifting, they bring that monument here.
1: And so, a monument to imperialism stands in a small town in Puerto Rico, looming over a de facto American
3: colony.
0: When we come back, Giselle Regatau continues her story on the myth of Columbus.
3: Columbus could almost be seen as a kind of ancestor figure justifying the American colonization Puerto Rico in the 1890s. Sort of like the story of colonization coming around full circle.
0: That's next on Monumental from PRX. Back in a moment.
7: If you're looking for a new podcast for your rotation, we recommend one of the first and the best to ever do it, The Kitchen Sisters present. You'll find a beautiful marriage of sound-rich, deeply-layered audio, and unexpected, compelling stories that crisscross the B-side of history. Learn about rogue librarians, or why rotisserie chicken is so cheap, or famous people like Ray Eames and Linda Ronstadt, and not-so-famous people like Susan Rogers, the technician who became Prince's sound engineer with no training in sound engineering, and Curtis Carroll, the stock market wizard of San Quentin Prison. You'll get something surprising every episode, From Radiotopia, the Kitchen Sisters present, listen everywhere you find podcasts,
1: and at kitchensisters.org. Columbus landed in Puerto Rico on his second trip, in 1493, but he never set foot on the mainland. So why has he been portrayed in so many statues throughout the country? And why are there about 5,000 streets, buildings, and schools named after Columbus, including the country's capital, the District of Columbia?
3: I think Columbus was chosen simply because he was seen as the first.
1: That's Kirk Savage, a professor of history of art and architecture at the University of Pittsburgh.
3: That idea that Columbus was the discoverer, I think, is what made him the key figure. Because the doctrine of discovery was so important, both legally and ideologically, when it was enshrined in a Supreme Court decision in 1823.
1: That was the Supreme Court ruling determining that Native Americans do not own land.
3: The doctrine of discovery gave the discoverer the ownership rights, and that the Native peoples who lived there only occupied the land. They didn't own it. You know, the United States saw itself as the inheritor of that right of conquest through discovery, through Columbus's discovery.
1: Savage says the first Columbus statue was installed in 1844. It was commissioned by the U.S. Congress. It featured Columbus with a semi-nude woman below him. She represented Native Americans.
3: Very racist, very problematic, overtly uh, racist statue that depicted Columbus as the kind of white man, you know, striding forward with a globe in his hand while this representation of the Native peoples just cowers below him without any agency. That was on the Capitol steps for over a century.
1: The statue was in a place of high visibility, For more than 100 years, it was the backdrop for presidents' inaugural addresses. Then one day, it was gone.
3: As far as I know, that was the first up and the first down. (laughs) Uh, It was removed in 1958, ostensibly because they were renovating the Capitol steps. They never put this one back because there had been many complaints about it from The National Congress of American Indians, they complained about it enough that eventually, in 58, they just decided it wasn't worth putting back up. And it's been in storage ever since. It's literally never been seen publicly since that time. In
1: 1992, as the U.S. celebrated 500 years of Columbus's arrival on the continent, indigenous groups protested against those celebrations. and against Columbus statues. But Catherine Dignizio points out the opposition to Columbus started way before that.
7: He has been challenged uh, since the very beginning. And in fact, even by people on his own boat. (laughs) So uh, Bartolome de las Casas is a religious figure who's traveling with Columbus who ended up detailing his accounts of Columbus's barbarism. And that's how we know about the violence that was actually Perpetrated. So even his own people did not revere Columbus and did not universally think he was such a great, awesome founder of anything.
1: Dignazio is an associate professor of urban science and planning at MIT. She also directs their Data Plus Feminism Lab. In 2021, the lab created a zine challenging the greatness of Columbus. It's called "We Never Wanted Him Here." But her questioning of the Columbus mystique is personal as well. I am
7: of Italian-American descent. My grandfather was Italian. And so Columbus is a
1: figure I've always had mixed feelings about. Kirk Savage from the University of Pittsburgh says in the 1900s, Italian-Americans and organizations like the Knights of Columbus played a key role in making statues of Columbus even more popular.
3: The fact that there are hundreds around the world is almost completely owing to the fact that Italian immigrants took over this symbol and pushed it as a symbol of their own heritage. What I think is important to stress, though, is that they adopted Columbus because he was already an important figure in white American mythology.
1: In 1937, the Knights of Columbus successfully lobbied President Franklin Roosevelt to make Columbus Day a national holiday. Here he's celebrating the day in one of his radio addresses during World War II.
6: Christopher
3: Columbus, who with the aid of Spain opened up a new world where freedom, and tolerance and respect for human rights and dignity provided an asylum for the oppressed of the old world.
1: Dignesia says when she was growing up, her grandfather was very proud of Columbus, and she understands the importance of that symbol. He was very
7: proud of the fact that uh, Italian-Americans had some representation in the, you know, U.S. kind of canonical history.
1: When Columbus Day became a national holiday, Italians had become the largest immigrant group in the country with political pull. But it had been a hard road to get there.
7: Italian immigrants were very discriminated against. My own grandfather has his own stories that he would tell us of the times. And as such,
1: he wanted to be assimilating into white culture. And she says that's what the Italian-American allyship with Columbus tries to do. That tries
7: to ally Italian-Americans with the dominant white culture, with this sort of founder's culture, with a nation-building quote-unquote discovery-oriented culture. And so, you know, what's the cost of that pride, right? And the cost of that is that we're overlooking both Columbus as the man himself and the horrible, genocidal, violent, sexual assault and other incredible violence that he perpetrated as a person. But then we're also overlooking the harm of this myth of discovery and kind of who is erased by that myth as well.
1: Derek Savage understands why earlier generations of Italian-American immigrants rallied around Columbus. But seeing the harm to indigenous people, he himself has picked one side.
3: What I guess tilts the debate for me in the direction of removal is that this is just really terrible history. You know, the Columbus cult is just wrong in so many ways. reinforces so many myths about our country that need to be changed, and reinforces white supremacy. And he just needs to go.
1: After the killing of Black American George Floyd by police in 2020, massive protests led to the removal of dozens of statues. Columbus became one of the biggest targets.
2: Tomorrow we'll be able to say we are still here, but he's gone.
1: (laughs) About 40 of his statues have been taken down all over the country. Around 130 still remain. As statues of Columbus are coming down, new monuments are coming up. Some of them celebrate those who have been erased and reject old white supremacist myths. Now, immigrants are putting themselves at the center of the story. Immigrants from all over live in Queens, New York. It's known as one of the most diverse urban areas in the world. And the neighborhood of Woodside is home to a lot of
2: Filipinos. We are on the corner of 69th Street and Roosevelt Avenue.
1: Jacqueline Reyes is a cultural organizer with a group called Little Manila Queens Bayanihan Arts. They create art about the Filipino community in New York, like the mural they painted on this corner. On it, the word Mabuhay is written in yellow and orange letters over a blue background. Around it, there are white jasmine flowers and green leaves. Reyes says the word means different things.
2: In Filipino, it has a lot of meanings. It doesn't translate in English very cleanly, but it means like, welcome, may you live. The mural was painted
1: in 2020, early COVID times. She says the mural was meant to lift the spirits of the people in the neighborhood.
2: When uh, Queens was the epicenter of the epicenter, at the time, we knew that Filipinos were going to be more impacted by the healthcare crisis because a lot of Filipinos are healthcare workers or work in the healthcare sector.
1: There's a reason so many Filipino immigrants are in healthcare. After the Philippines became a U.S. colony, Americans created nursing programs in that country. According to Julian Goh, the sociologist from the University of Chicago, that was strategic.
5: Colonial powers have all kinds of interests, um, economic and political interests. And one of the things besides raw materials um, that they can get from colonies is labor, right? Cheap labor.
1: In the 1960s, the U.S. started allowing foreign professionals to come here. The medical field needed workers, and Filipino nurses helped meet that need. Jacqueline Reyes says the mural celebrates those nurses.
2: And it was also just to... Kind of show our solidarity to the people living in Queens, also to the people who came from outside New York City, like welcoming them.
1: The mural clearly resonates with a passerby who can't help interrupting our interview.
5: I was wondering who, who made this one? This, this is so
3: beautiful. Oh, thank it you. It represents oh. the country. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah, that's what I tried to do. How I, do you think represents the country?
4: Yeah, because that word represents the Filipino. Yeah. So it says long live. That's the meaning of it. Yeah. So when you say mabuhay to any person, it seems that just go on, go on to your life.
2: Keep on. (laughs) Yeah. But also, Reyes
1: tends to draw people in. Wait, what's your name again? Richard. 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 Jacqueline. She's 36 years old. She has straight brown hair with a blonde highlight streak. She seems at home here, but she actually grew up in Los Angeles. Her parents are Filipino immigrants. She says when she moved to New York City in 2010, she would often come to Woodside.
2: If I needed to get Filipino groceries, if I wanted to be around Filipinos, um, I would come here.
1: The mural was the first project of what Reyes calls creative placekeeping. As part of that effort, in 2022, they were able to officially co-name One Street here, Little Manila Avenue.
0: (laughs) Isang Baksa! Mabuhay, I'm bayan.
2: We saw that the the street sign getting installed as an important part of monument making because it's like let's get used to like us taking up space publicly.
1: The next step will be the creation of a monument about a Filipino woman known as Tandang Sora.
2: Tandang Sora is this, she's like this revolutionary figure in Philippine history. Tandang Sora is like the anti-Columbus.
1: She was in her 80s when she provided support for the revolutionaries fighting Spain in the late 1800s.
2: She was there like part of the Philippine Revolution, but she was taking care of people. And so we want to highlight that. Care labor is just as heroic as any other narrative out there. And we thought that this monument to to Tandang Sora would help, I guess, elevate that, to increase the visibility of women doing that work.
1: Reyes says revolutionaries in the Philippines and Puerto Rico were exchanging ideas about how to fight Spain.
2: If you look at the Puerto Rican flag and the Filipino flag with that triangle— It's because of the solidarity between those different communities. So our struggles are intertwined, actually. And like Puerto Rico, the Philippines was
1: ruled by Americans. The U.S. controlled the country for almost 50 years, until 1946. Reyes says with her work, she's
2: highlighting voices that were erased by that history. Maybe a form of decolonizing is just like, amplifying women's stories first and just balancing it out the history a bit more and I think that women would approach monuments differently because I don't think that women would want to impose like huge figures of themselves right that's why like I'm resistant to like just putting another statue up because I don't think that our freedom should be imitating our oppression does that make sense (laughs)
1: The placing of Birth of the New World in Arecibo was quite the saga. For cultural organizers like Reyes, building a monument is not a simple process either, but for very different reasons. Her group has been talking to the community and is considering several ideas. Building a resting place, putting art on the bridge that connects little Manila to a central plaza, or designing a statue.
2: It takes a long time to really conceptualize something that could have uh, the resonance that it should have, like the hopes and aspirations we want for this message or this figure or all of these women that we're trying to like speak for. We, We wanted to do it right.
1: They will present different ideas to the community to get their feedback. And even though they've got a grant from the Mellon Foundation, they will probably have to raise more money to build something permanent.
2: Building a monument is also building consensus around it, um, building the desire, building the consciousness around it. Even if we had the money, if we were to just put a statue there with no context, it wouldn't mean anything. So it's a slow—to change minds, to change our understanding of history takes a long time, you know?
1: The process that Reyes and her team are going through is much more inclusive than how monuments have been built in the past. Kirk Savage, the professor from the University of Pittsburgh, says that historically, monuments have said a lot about who we are as people.
3: The process of building and erecting a monument is a microcosm of all of the social forces and conflicts that go into any kind of political activity and decision-making. So that's on on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, the finished monument, once it's erected, becomes, as I say, a kind of microcosm of the world that is imagined by those people who have the power and privilege to imagine that world.
1: Unless they're being built with input from the community, like Reyes is doing in Queens, Savage says monuments can do more harm than good.
3: I would say that after, you know, a lifetime studying traditional monuments, I'd say we probably could use a lot less of them. Uh, I'm, I'm not willing to say that we shouldn't ever erect any more because I think that they still have the power to do good and to change the narrative in ways that are healthy and constructive and good for us all, but most of the time they don't. And I think the more we turn the commemorative landscape into a more living landscape, right, in which people are engaging with it. From different perspectives and different points of view, you know, that's democracy.
1: I'm trying to imagine what this living landscape would look like. I hope the people of Arecibo in Puerto Rico get to create their own.
0: This episode of Monumental was written and produced by Gisele Regatau. Special thanks to Wendy Smith and Kike Cubero-Garcia. The senior editor for Monumental is Rosalind Tordesilius. And our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Jamie York is our writer. And our associate producer is Lauren Francis. The show is recorded by Bryce Bowman and Ben Erickson at Earshot Audio Post and mixed by Tommy Bazarian with support from Emmanuel Desarme, Pedro Rafael Rosado, Morgan Flannery, and Sandra Lopez-Mansalve. Fact-checking by Cristina Ribello. Our theme was composed and produced by Jelani Bowman, with additional music by Alexis Cuadrado. Edwin Ochoa is our project manager and our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Monumental is produced by PRX Productions and made possible by a grant from the Mellon Foundation. For more on the show, visit us at prx.org backslash monumental. Coming up on the next episode of Monumental, how a Civil War obelisk has become a flashpoint for a 400-year-old identity crisis in Santa Fe, New Mexico a place that's still struggling with the legacy of slavery, colonialism, and belonging. Do I look like a savage? Does my children look like savages? We don't. The word savage and that
2: obelisk are one and the same to me and my family and to the Indigenous community.
0: I'm Ashley C. Ford. Thanks for listening.